Hello and welcome to the October 2020 podcast of the AJPH. You just heard the great Kofo, the Wonder Man, from Nigeria, backed up by his band The Daylight Stars, singing his composition called Ajaja, meaning the twister in Yoruba. When Kofo wrote, the twister will arrive, the twister will come on us, beware and prepare, because soon the twister will unfold his wrath upon us. Then COVID-19 was still a threat. Now it has unfolded its wrath and our reaction is what we will discuss in this podcast. In 15 years, the U.S. has undergone several major natural disasters. In some cases, such as the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans or the water contamination in Flint, Michigan, the material damage has been partly remediated But has public health undergone the root changes it needed to prepare for further inevitable disasters? In this podcast, we will attempt to answer three questions. How effective has the U.S. response to the pandemic been? Were the major but localized crisis of Katrina and Flint harbingers of the generalized COVID-19 crisis? What did we learn from them to prepare for the COVID-19 pandemic? And what did we miss? Third, did CDC play the role the public, the states, and scientists were expecting from it? My guests are Joe Cantor, Bob Kim Farley, and Wendy Parmet. So just introduce each of you briefly so that people then know who is speaking. So Bob, would you start, please? Yes, my name is Robert Kim Farley. I am a professor at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health and an associate editor with the American Journal of Public Health. Thank you. Wendy? Hi, I'm Wendy Parmet. I'm the Matthews University Distinguished Professor of Law and the faculty director of the Center for Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University and an associate editor of the journal. Joe? Hi, this is Joe Cantor. I am the Assistant State Health Officer for the Louisiana Department of Health, and I serve as the lead public health official in the greater New Orleans area. So my first question is going to be for you, Bob. How could you characterize the signature response that this administration has given to the crisis? I think we all recognize that uh, those were challenging times and that any administration would have faced very challenging problems. But according to you, how did this administration do? I think there's a number of things that have happened in terms of the response uh, to COVID-19 in our country. I think firstly is the importance of having clear and consistent messaging so that at all levels that same message is being done as to what people are supposed to do in businesses and schools so that we have not sometimes had that. We've had maybe the scientific community on one side, the political community on another, and there's been divisions about that. I think uh, secondly also that there needs to be clear demonstration of the practice of that messaging so that for example with mask use That needs to be shown and demonstrated at political levels at all areas of the administration. And that sometimes has not been done. I think also another important part uh, in 
for government is when there are shortages. For example, when we've had shortages of PPE and testing, that's really the role where the federal government should step in, be able to work and support states in procurement and distribution equitably to those states most in need. So I think that's a lesson, an important lesson to learn that we need to keep these robust and stocked. Some of the things that have been going well is the efforts being put into vaccine development. There's a number of promising candidates at the moment at uh, the phase three level. But again, we have some cautionary note that we want to make sure that we don't cut any corners on completing a, a phase three test to make sure that this vaccine is safe and effective. But I think we are doing a good jump start, if you will, for vaccine development. So Joe, on the other side of the response in New Orleans, how, what was your perception of what happened uh, during this U.S. response to COVID? Yeah, thanks, Alfredo. And Bob, I agree with everything you said. I think they're great points. I'll tell you, from the perspective of being on the ground, and in Louisiana, New Orleans in particular, had a very early spike just after Seattle, close in time to New York. Um, and we, then we went through a second spike later, but particularly during that first spike, we really felt that it was every person for themselves uh, or every state or every city for themselves. And uh, there was a lack of coordination, particularly for crucial items, PPE and, and ventilators, namely, uh, to the point that the, the lack of organization was really a drain on resources. We were literally bidding on the private market for ventilators and PPE against other states, against large hospital systems, at some points even against the federal government itself. A lot of energy was spent navigating these Byzantine procurement pathways and not knowing what supplies would come, not knowing if the supply would be commandeered. That happened a number of times across the country to us as well. And that ate up a lot of our resources, to be honest. I think it would have been beneficial if there was transparency about what supplies were available across the country and how they would be rationed up. I think that would have allowed us to focus more on the response and not literally bidding against other states and hospitals to, to get the supplies that we needed. Reliance on, on the private market and the lack of coordination. Wendy, what's your perspective on this response in the U.S.? I agree with everything that has been said. I think the lack of coordination has been critical, but I think it's also important to recognize that there's a lot of little issues below the headliners that all taken together have been problematic in ways that the federal government has not done everything it could do, or in some cases has made matters worse. I give you an example federal government has regulatory authority over workplace safety. And we've seen a lot of outbreaks in, for example, meatpacking plants. And the federal government said meatpacking plants are essential, but they didn't do what they could do to assure that the workers would be safe. One area where I've been doing a lot of work is in the area of immigration and health. And that's an area where we've seen that the administration has continued certain policies during this period that have increased communities' fear of interacting with ICE. We see people are afraid of getting going into the healthcare system, interacting with contact tracers, not being able to access the care they need. 
We've seen detention continuing in ways that increase the dangers in detention facilities. Those are just two examples, but there are many more, I would say, below the radar, small ways in which regulatory authority has not been used in ways consistent with an all-hands-on approach to containing the pandemic. Got it. But we were not prepared, as I understand all of you saying, and we didn't do well across this uh, pandemic, but we had examples in the past. And I'm going to turn to Joe again, because you're in uh, New Orleans and 15 years ago, exactly, there was Hurricane Katrina and its devastation. Was Hurricane Katrina foreshadowing COVID-19? Could we have learned something out of it? In a way, absolutely. And you're right, 15 years ago, almost to the day. And and now, in a strange turn of events, New Orleans is hosting and caring for over 10,000 displaced individuals from the Lake Charles area, western part of the state. But Katrina laid bare the, the need for preparedness and also the need for localities to be able to sustain themselves, at least during the early phase of a response to a disaster. It, it also laid very clear the notion that vulnerable people are vulnerable. And that goes across any emergency. The racial disparities that we saw in the aftermath of Katrina, who died in Katrina, are the same racial disparities that we see right now and who gets exposed to COVID and what the clinical outcomes are. I know it's similar across the country as well. I think in the time since then, we've done a good job in public health at describing the problem, describing social determinants describing inequities. I think we as a country have done less good of a job at marshalling the resources to actually address that, to remake the system in a way that is supportive. I think some good things did come out. We certainly were better prepared for this emergency as a result of the Katrina experience. And to think of a specific example, we built robust communication systems with hospitals across the state so that we have good visibility on bed capacity, what type of patients are in every bed across the state. We were able to use that this time around to know exactly how many ventilators we had, where they were, how many negative pressure rooms we had, and so forth. That helped us. But in a larger sense, we still felt like during the first month of the outbreak here, we were by ourselves. We were fending for our own. And I don't think we were prepared to do that. The federal government will often reimburse on the back end. FEMA will reimburse. But localities need to be prepared to do the first part alone. And I don't think everyone realizes that. Wendy, I have the impression that when Katrina came, the center of the crisis were inner cities. And it was indeed the Black population because it was deindustrialized. There were unemployment and all these other aspects. But since Katrina, we've had this extension to rural areas and where there are a larger fraction of a white population and all those deaths of despairs, etc. And this is the new context of, of a general crisis, urban and rural, when COVID-19 comes. What's your feeling about that? I totally agree. I think to some extent there have been lots of foreshadowing events 
in rural areas, in urban areas, what we've seen for many years now is both rising inequality, we've seen communities facing economic devastation, we've seen the continuation and perhaps even the exacerbation of structural racism as our country has become increasingly divided. And then, right, there are there's also the erosion of public health and basic infrastructure. So we've seen this to some extent, Katrina, Flint, diseases of despair, the causes of the causes are the same for all of them. But the one other deep cause I want to mention, which I've been thinking a lot about Flint lately, which also has a lot of similarities, although like Katrina, more localized than COVID, is the political disempowerment. And in Flint, the community really lost its right, its legal right to self-govern when the governor appointed a fiscal manager to take over decision-making power, really disenfranchising the population. And this, of course, is also true with immigrants who don't have the vote or don't have the political power, really can't take measures to ensure that the government is responsive to their needs. And then when a crisis hits, it becomes a catastrophe. It just cascades because the well-being of these communities has not been safeguarded. And so we're seeing that right now across the country. So we have a lack of coordination, lack of leadership, lack of attention to vulnerable population. I'm asking this to all of you. What would you have liked to see in the response of the administration? I'll jump in. Yeah, I would have liked to see an earlier control of the supply chain. I would have to be assured that in the beginning part, when we were talking about genuinely life-saving equipment, PPE and ventilators, an assurance that they were going, that our nation's resources were going to where they were most needed, not to the highest bidder. I think I would start there. Later on, I think we've gotten in a big problem with messaging and it's gotten so politicized that every public health message is just caked in layers and layers of politics. And that's disastrous. I don't know how to unravel that. It's gonna take a lot of work, I think, to regain confidence in the institutions like the FDA and CDC that, that we all rely on as bastions of public health. Bob, uh, I see really there being three protagonists involved with the control of COVID-19. You have government and its public health institutions businesses, schools, and then you have individuals themselves. And each has a role to play here. And governments need to be monitoring the situation, need to be giving guidelines and guidance out, having clear criteria and what are the actions that are necessary to take and then emulating them. Then also uh, there's that coordinating role of government for scarce supplies. Then with the uh, businesses and schools, we need to make sure that they are properly taking that guidance and actually implementing it in terms of, let's say, for example, first there may be only takeout for restaurants and then there may be 25% capacity or then 50% capacity. These things need to be actually implemented and done by businesses and schools. And then the individual needs to be actually practicing the physical distancing, the mask use when you have community transmission occurring. So I think it's these three protagonists and it just doesn't work unless all three of them are uh, on the same page, clear messaging, clear intent, clear demonstration and follow through. But what was the worst of the protagonists? Who failed the most? It's interesting because we have the controversy in society. And one thing I think actually with COVID, 
19 is it has hit a sweet spot in terms of controversy because of its infection to mortality rate, about 1%. It's actually, I think, a spot that causes controversy. Some people arguing that the closures, the loss of businesses, their livelihoods, things like this is worse than the numbers that are dying. You have others that would say, no, every life is precious and we need to do everything we can to save every life. So you end up with some of this division complicated even further by the skewed age distribution of COVID-19, such that younger people will be saying, look, why am I having my schooling deprived, uh, my first career jobs and all of these things gone when it's really not affecting me? without realizing, again, needing compassion to make sure that they're not infecting older and people with pre-existing medical conditions. Got it. Wendy, do you want to chime in? I agree with that, but I think, I think we can't underestimate the importance of messaging from the top, from our political leaders across the board. I think it's very hard to lay the blame on individuals who, you know, the people who don't wear the mask and walk into the restaurant and all of that. Yes, they don't, many people don't understand or disagree about the severity of the disease. But I also think we're all getting mixed messaging. We're all being bombarded with conflicting messages about what to do, how serious it is, what is cured, is it a hoax, is it the common cold, is it seasonal influence? And I think, yes, the, the disease's characteristics make this exceptionally hard to, for us to all get on board. And yes, the country, had so many problems and our public health system was weakened going in and we are a country where individuals prize and cherish their individual freedom and decision making but we've also and it's here's what's different from crises past it's hard to think of a crisis in recent decades where there's been so much misinformation, so much conflicting information, and so much just polarization. And people think the disease hurts them, I don't care. We're coming to a place which is really scary, where people are devaluing the lives of other people, usually people of a different political party or of a different racial group. And so we are we really are handling this about as badly in the in terms of the messaging as it can be and so i don't think we can blame individuals for not knowing what to do yeah joe that is such a great point wendy and listen, until we have a vaccine and one that we can be assured is efficacious and safe the tool that we have to fight this is individual behavior and public messaging that's the tool that we have as a, as a society to fight this virus and we have not leveraged that as a society the way that we should. There's, our leaders have sowed misinformation and, and doubt. And we don't have many other tools besides good public health communications right now. And we've really almost thrown that tool away.
Yeah, and I have to say that we've seen states and local health department leading the response in, in an uncoordinated manner. And we would have expected CDC to be much more prominent and authoritative throughout the crisis. So, Wendy, what happened with CDC? Where is the CDC we used to know? It's a tragedy. It's, it really is a tragedy. CDC was for a very long time the premier public health agency, not only in the country, but one of the premier ones around the world. And its primary job is actually not regulating. It has some regulatory powers, potentially vast, but it really doesn't usually use its regulatory powers. Its primary job has been to provide expert guidance, messaging. The states look to CDC and many crises. Think about the H1N1 crisis. Think about Ebola. CDC is the face. CDC is out there. And CDC, from the get-go, there have been problems, some of it from CDC itself. There was the testing fiasco early on last winter when the test the CDC distributed was ineffective. And then they've been sidelined by the administration to a very large degree. We, we ended up having the White House task force. There's been certainly reports that the White House and, and the administration has pressured CDC, for example, with the new guidance that came out last week about the testing of asymptomatic individuals. And so it's lost its prestige, it's lost its credibility. The states have, I think, stopped waiting or looking for CDC. And we see this with schools. You know, every school district, every state, they're going their own way. They're not, wait, they're not following what CDC is telling them to do because CDC has become a non-entity. Joe, you were on the front line and a very severely hit region, Louisiana. So what has been the importance and the role of CDC for you there? I thought in the beginning weeks, the CDC did a good job, at least a good job for us. I can think of a couple examples. Number one, when we were having shortages of healthcare personnel because there were so many exposures in the healthcare setting and people were out quarantining. I thought the CDC was proactive in releasing relaxed guidelines of how um, essential workers, like healthcare workers, could remain on the job and work through quarantines. You can't just have the healthcare workforce out. I thought that was a good pragmatic movement. They took some heat from that and that's what they're supposed to do. As the weeks went on, I thought that what the CDC put out was increasingly politicized and reviewed by higher ups. Uh, and that was disappointing. But earlier on, we had a good line of communication with them. We got, I thought, honest and pragmatic advice and we really did appreciate that. Bob. Yes, yeah, there's a career uh, commission officer in the public health service at the CDC, uh, I too am somewhat dismayed to see it becoming uh, more politicized and uh, reduced in terms of its importance. Another major institution uh, that has been hit with this is the World Health Organization, which uh, the present administration is planning to actually back out of. And having spent 18 years in WHO myself, again, it's sure it is not a perfect organization, but it has the global mandate to be coordinating global health activities. And really, rather than moving away from it, we should have actually, I think, been supporting it, strengthening it, 
working in collaboration with other nations to recognize that this is a time for world unity, trying to fight something together, wealthier countries supporting those countries that may not have as much resources, things like this. So we, we need to be using these institutions to be able to work in those areas. Okay, what type of uh, transformation would CDC need? Do you have an idea how the new CDC should look like? How should it be transformed? I think that CDC really needs to be reestablished as an independent agency. I think the politicization has been incredibly detrimental. You know what, it doesn't even matter if there was, the perception of politicization is itself incredibly detrimental. And so organizing it with, for example, an independent governing board, I'm thinking something more similar to the Federal Reserve. If it were like the Federal Reserve, it would be managed by a board, bipartisan, not under presidential control. The director would be there for at least 10 years across several administrations. So anyone else wants to chime in on this idea of the independence of CDC? I think it again is not only having some buffer, some independence, but again, it requires that the senior administration officials in the government also value and recognize the wisdom, collective wisdom of CDC and strengthen and promote its science to the, the people. I think that change has to occur as well. Okay. Joe, the last word. Well, I totally agree. I think we assumed for so many years because the CDC was the CDC or so respected, of course it wouldn't be politicized, but there was nothing structural in place to prevent that. And I think we have to build that now. Great. Thank you, everybody, for your time, for your contribution. I'm very grateful for that. All right. This is a sobering appraisal of the situation. The magnitude of the challenges of this pandemic cannot justify the lack of leadership, the inability to coordinate the activities and resources of the CDC, of Human and Health Services, of Homeland Security, and of the FDA. This lack of coordinated leadership has clear trickle-down effects on local governments, leading to public confusion about proper guidelines to preventing and reducing the spread. The administration has also placed the states in a position of competing with one another and sometimes competing with the government itself to buy protective equipments and respirators. The sidestepping of public health expertise and the attacks against science at the highest level of the administration made things worse when it came to reopening the economy or sending children back to school. But probably the most striking conclusion of this panel is that little has been done over the last 15 years since Hurricane Katrina violently hit New Orleans to address the structural issues that make the death and misery toll of these disasters so huge and lasting effects so inequitable. 
The vast majority of people severely affected belong to ethnic and racial minorities, are either unemployed or underemployed, or are working in so-called essential occupations made vulnerable to infectious agents. To better prepare the country for future disasters, our public health needs to be rebuilt on new foundations. And in particular, we need an independent CDC as a separate entity managed by a governing board and which director is elected every 10 years. I'm grateful to all the members of the panel for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino and Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. And since communication quality was so central to this podcast, let me add that Kofo the Wonder Man is a renowned talking drummer hailed as a genius by his peers. His instrument, the talking drum, is pivotal in the Yoruba culture, expressing syllable, words, and phrases. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on your usual podcast app. A full transcript of the podcast is available on our website for persons with hearing disabilities. That's it. Thank you for listening. Ah!